uh, today we are going to uh, look at some outcomes of the day of Pentecost. That is, things that happened because the day of Pentecost happened. These are also things that would not have happened had the day of Pentecost not happened. So there are, there are things that God has done in his plan to redeem humanity, to save the world, that there are things that God has done over time. And we, we sometimes call that redemptive history. That is, God has worked through, throughout, uh, uh, throughout the earth over time and progressively revealed his plan of salvation through his son, Jesus. And here at the day of Pentecost, we come to uh, pretty much the end of what the church normally celebrates in terms of an every year sort of celebration. Last week, we had just talked about ascension and we had highlighted how the ascension proves that Christ not only is Lord, but it also proves that the Father is is favorable towards the apostles and their uh, spiritual descendants, the church. And by that extension, the Father is favorable to us. We saw that through Christ's ascension, that he rules and reigns on the throne of heaven over all of the universe. And from that rule and reign, Christ is unfolding history for his redemptive plans and purposes. And so at the ascension of Christ, at the fullness of that ascension and glorification, God sends forth the Holy Spirit, and this is what we call Pentecost. Um, so with, with that in mind, uh, you, you just heard the reading, but that's the, that's the redemptive historical context in which Acts 2 takes place. So we're going to look at how Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost is for us and for the whole world a new beginning. We're going to look at the implications um, poetically and from a redemptive historical mindset of, of what the Tower of Babel uh, was and why Acts to the day of Pentecost is the undoing of the, the Tower of Babel. We're going to look at how when the Holy Spirit comes on this day, he brings into force the new law which Christ had told us about and um, he puts it into our hearts in such a way that we can live it. We're going to look at how on this day, the Holy Spirit comes and makes us bold and opens up our mouths to speak, and also how we are now, after being enlightened by the Holy Spirit, that we are to shine our light forth in the earth. And uh, finally, we're going to discuss very briefly why it's so important to look at these aspects. Uh, if you have grown up in a charismatic church or a evangelical church, you may have heard of the day of Pentecost and been told that this is the day when the spiritual gifts were given to the church. And that's true. In no way do I wish to neglect any of the spiritual gifts that are important to us, such as tongues, prophecy, acts of service, acts of mercy, healing, um, interpretation. Those, those gifts that the Holy Spirit works among us are vital and important, and they came through this day. However, there is also a very uh, beautiful landscape of theology that exists around the importance of the day of Pentecost. So we're going to look at those things today. So Pentecost is a new beginning. In Genesis, in the first creation, the Spirit, if you remember the, the verse in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is hovering over the face of of the deep. There's a formless and void earth, and God is about to 
do something with that earth. He's about to separate the waters from the dry land. And so the, the Spirit's effect in that hovering can be seen as a sort of uh, invigoration of the waters, or, or if you will, a, a literal stirring of those waters. Likewise, in the day of Pentecost, it says that there is a great sound from heaven. When, when the day of Pentecost had come, the Holy Spirit came to brood over Jerusalem and prepare these people for the new creation of the church, the people of God. With that, with that base of imagery, we, we move on to look at the, uh, the Old Testament reading today. In the garden, God had instructed Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the earth. Yet they disobeyed God. And so because of this, we know that God put a curse on the earth. So we, see it, we begin to see the framework of an encounter of a judgment of God. God sees man's actions and disobedience and evaluates. He comes down to the garden and evaluates what's taken place. If you remember the story, God comes to the garden to walk and to talk with Adam. And, and that's when Adam's hiding. Um, and because Adam's hiding, because Adam has sinned, God brings a curse and pronounces a curse on the earth. Um, it, it actually is the case that God pronounced the curse on the earth. Adam's actions invited and brought that curse, but God himself subjected the whole creation to futility for, uh, to, to see that unfold through the person and work of Jesus. So at, at the garden, God comes, pronounces a curse, and then man is expelled from the garden and he's dispersed out into the earth. In the same way, this is what happens in the Tower of Babel. Instead of going throughout the whole world as God had instructed mankind, the, what can be thought of the dominion as the dominion mandate, the idea to go into all the world, to subdue it and make it fruitful, glorify it and beautify it, use it for God's purposes, man had rebelled against God and had desired to create a city. Now, in the creation of this city, they had an initiative that they wanted to put forward. And so they desired to create a tower. And it says in our reading, they desired to create a tower lest they be dispersed over the whole earth. They wanted a name for themselves and they wanted a glory on their own apart from God. The problem with this, of course, is that God had given them no charter to create the city. We know that the end of history ends with a great city. We move, we move from garden to city, but they were attempting to, uh, they were attempting to overthrow God's plan and God's timing. And so this tower speaks of in a, in a poetic way, it speaks of man's desire and need to reach into the heavenlies. But this, this reaching was done without God's permission and against his will. So at Babel, just like as at the Garden of Eden, man's sin brought the curse, but God pronounced that curse. And so this curse of confusion is put on, on the, the world. Um, this, this is a, a, an effect of our sin. Mankind does not communicate well with other men. We, we have racial wars. Um, in this country, our history of, of the the civil rights movement and slavery and many other manifold tangential issues uh, alone, that alone tells us and gives us evidence that man is at war with men who are not like him because he's an idolater. 
and he's he's fashioned a god in his own image and so he he sees other men who don't look like him and and man is at war with with other nations and so there's a at the tower of babel this this sin is magnified and it begins to translate not only brother against brother as in Cain killing Abel but now nations are now opposed to each other and they're driven away they can't communicate and they can't understand each other this is what happens at the Tower of Babel because of man's desire to create his own city without God. So man is, is driven out of Babylon or, or the Mesopotamian region, and he's driven out into all the corners of the earth. And so at Babel, we see that the people are split and divided and driven apart from one another. The significance and the reason we're talking about this is that Pentecost is the redemptive historical undoing of the curse that was brought about at the Tower of Babel. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, like we said, that that invigoration that he does, and he invigorates these new people, the, the people of God, and he comes and gives them ability to speak and boldness. And so, Understanding this, uh, we begin to see the beauty and the glory of God's plan, and and it's it's a vital thing for us to understand these these larger themes of Scripture because they they help us work out the details of difficult parts. So at Pentecost, the Spirit reverses the confusion of Babel and gathers the nations who had been divided to confess one Lord Jesus Christ with one voice. That, they, that the apostles and their unity, the, the fact that they were in that upper room together in one accord, that unity is now by the Holy Spirit extended to the healing of the nations. And so this new creation, the church that God has brought about, uh, would be for the destruction of every high and lofty thing. And this is, again, language that tells us that, you know, this symbol of the Tower of Babel. It was man's attempt to reach up toward God or reach up toward spiritual things without uh, God's permission. And so, so Christianity, the church uh, bringing the presence of Christ, is not only about the establishment of the city of God and the, and the righteousness that comes from the people of God living in all the world, but it also is for the destruction of every opposing tower that every, Paul says it's a, it's a high thing. He literally is talking about um, doctrines of demons and ideologies, philosophies of man that are con- uh, counter to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he says our weapons of warfare, that is our spiritual tools, the gospel and the spiritual gifts, those weapons are mighty in God for the destruction and pulling down of every stronghold, every high and lofty thing which raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And that is what is happening at the day of Pentecost. So with the dividing wall that was torn down between uh, between Jew and Gentile, when Christ died in, in the book of Ephesians, uh, when Christ died in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says that Christ tore down the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile. And now through the day of Pentecost, the church going out into all the world and preaching the gospel to all nations brings that victory present to them. Uh, there's this notion that Paul has that he says, um, in my body, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, in the sufferings of Christ. Now, all of us, uh, if we're 
confessing Protestant believers or, or, or what, what have you, we would say there is nothing la- lacking in the atonement. Jesus totally paid for all of the sins of the world and paid for the ability for all who are God's people to come to God. So in, in that, what does Paul mean? What does he mean when he says, in my body, I fill up the measure of what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? What I believe he means, and I think it's easy to, to verify, is that through Paul's sufferings, the beatings, the whippings, the, um, the abuse, the, the snake bite, the, the wreck, all of, all of what Paul has gone through, he is bringing the gospel to people who haven't heard. And in that way, he is making present the gospel for nations who were far away from Jerusalem when Christ died. So in the same way, the church brings the gospel into all the nations and presents to them the gospel that Christ has torn down the dividing wall, separating Jew and Gentile, man and woman, uh, black and white. And we bring that message to the remote parts of the world that haven't heard that. And so this is, this is the spiritual significance of understanding uh, Pentecost as the undoing of, of Babel. So without Christ's death, the dividing wall would have never come down like we had just discussed. And so also without Pentecost, without God sending the church into all the earth, the message of the gospel would have never reached the far remote regions of the earth. This, this helps us to understand the value This helps us to understand and see the value and importance of the day of Pentecost. This is not a a trivial holiday. This is not a thing that we should relegate to a token uh, prayer or a moment at home when we speak in tongues or or be encouraged more to prophesy just on one day. We should begin to see the the day of Pentecost as an integral element of the gospel. So because the spirit has come, we see all nations blessed and God is able to fulfill that promise that he gave through Abraham. So another element and effect of the day of Pentecost is this idea of the new law. That is, Christ had come and spoken to his disciples about a, a, new, a new word or a new law that he had to give, but it's not really new. It's just empowered now. So the day of Pentecost, historically, in the, in the Old Covenant, was a feast day. And this feast day was uh, intended, its, its role was to remind the people of Israel how God was gracious to them in bringing them out of Egypt, making them a people, making them a, a, a national identity, giving them a place in the earth, And most importantly, the day of Pentecost was about celebrating the fact that God had given them grace in, in giving the law to them. They were not a people who had no, uh, no law. They were not a people who did not have a, a ruler. Uh, they had a law code given to them and that law code was grace as we've been talking about the last few weeks. So at Sinai, God pledges to make Israel his special people and in, and gives them uh, a token of grace in telling them how they should live in the land that he's he's given to them. So all of all of Sinai is grace upon grace. He gives them a law, he gives them a land, he chooses them without any merit on their own. They have no dealings. They, they've not gone to God and asked for any of this. God has just chosen them. And so grace is manifoldly present at Mount Sinai. But there's a problem. And the problem is in, in, 
innate human sinfulness, just as at the fall and we, how we saw how Adam was expelled from the garden. So also with Cain and Abel, how Cain killed his brother Abel, and then Cain was cursed and had to walk about the earth, just as at the tower of Babel, how the nations were confused and driven away from one another. So also the people of God, after receiving grace, fall into to a sin of idolatry. And this sin is a grievous sin. Literally in the textual record, the story, the account of, Acts, uh, of Exodus 32, we, it, Moses is receiving the law and he steps down the mountain. And at the very moment, God had just told them, I am the Lord, your God. I'm one. You shall have no gods before me. At that very moment, the people of Israel had already turned to idolatry. Adam cre- or, uh, Aaron creates this golden calf. Um, if you remember the story and he says to the people of Israel, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. That's phenomenal. It's a, it's a terrifying story of our, our fickleness and hardness of heart. And so the people of Israel, they, in, they go through this idolatry and the, the thing that's most heinous about it is that while they were leaving Egypt, we've talked about this before, that God gave them favor with the Egyptians and they plundered the Egyptians. As the Israelites were leaving, they were given tons of jewelry and gold and necklaces and earrings. And they had taken this grace, this money that God had given them to use in their first few generations of being in this land. Uh, they had taken this grace and used it as a form of licentiousness and idolatry. And so though the people sin greatly, God is extremely faithful and he's extremely kind and gracious. And so at Pentecost, we see this happen again. God is, God is coming and giving his people a new law and he's binding himself to them. Not only did Jesus choose the 12, just as God the father uh, chose Yahweh, God, God chose Israel in the old covenant, apart from their own involvement in the matter. Just as, just as that happened, Jesus chooses the 12 and he gives them a set of instructions to live by. And by the day of Pentecost, he now is present to them by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus actually enables the law, the Torah to be, to be done by his new people. Uh, where the law could not give grace uh, and the law could not give empowerment, now by the Spirit, God is with us to do his, his work and his ways. That was what we sang for and prayed for, that the church would be hungry for God's ways. And so <clears throat> these are not a people who receive a law code that comes down on tablets of stone, but Paul says that they, they are those who have the law written on their hearts and God's word on their conscience. And so this is a law that they are able to complete from the heart. Now, again, I'm not saying that their righteousness comes from completing the law, but God's sending of his Holy Spirit puts the law into force. Jesus said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it and to put it into force. Without the Holy Spirit coming, we were never able to turn from our idolatry. The pattern of the Old Testament is clear. Time and time again, the Israelites turn from idolatry and return to idolatry. This is, this is the story. It's, a, it's God proving through literature, through the literature of the Old Testament, that even his most special treasure will turn away and worship idols. 
That's, it's basically the only way that God can communicate it to us over and over again throughout history. Israel turns away and yet turns back to idols. They forget God. They, they don't celebrate the memorials. They don't observe the days that he had commanded them to, and they, they fall into idolatry. And so Pentecost is now God's great remedy to this solution. Not only had Jesus made atonement for all of the idolatry that we would commit, but now the Holy Spirit has come to make a diclension in our heart, to, to make a division in our heart that he would separate our idolatrous old man from the, the new man made in his image. And so at Pentecost, we see this great promise of both Isaiah and Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, 24, 28, we see this as the, this is the fulfillment of, of this prophecy. The day of Pentecost is when we celebrate God totally fulfilling his, his promise. That is the, the new covenant promise that he'd given the people of Israel. It not just was made possible by Christ taking on flesh and being God among us, Emmanuel. It was not just that Jesus had done acts of mercy, demonstrating the kindness and good good intentions of the father. It wasn't just that he had suffered and died and atoned for our sins. And it wasn't just that Christ had resurrected from the grave and defeated death. It also is the coming of the Holy spirit, the empowering of his people to live in his ways. That is the totality of the gospel. And without every element, we will be uh, spiritually deficient. So this this prophecy that Ezekiel gives concerning what's going to come about in the new covenant, this is totally fulfilled to the letter on this day of Pentecost. He says, this is God speaking. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I, give to you, that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is is all how we enter into Christ. That, that entire prophecy is how we come and, and join the church, begin to partake in the life of Christ together. At Pentecost, the celebration of the first fruits, the first fruits being a, a representative of the whole, this representative sample of the people who were there at the nations is a prophetic picture of all those who would come after. In Acts 2.5, uh, our reading says today that literally... There were people dwelling in Jerusalem. They were there for the Feast of Weeks. They were there for the day of Pentecost. And there were men from uh, dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, you, you have to realize that there were no Native American Indians and there were no Eskimos at Jerusalem that day. When the Bible says that there were people there from every nation under heaven. He's saying the, the scripture is saying, these are the representatives, the initial people who were saved from all these different countries that, that Larry had read just a few moments ago. 
all of these people were representatives of all the nations that would eventually be touched by the maturation and the spreading of the gospel throughout all the earth. And so this is the fulfillment of, of Ezekiel's promise. He literally says, I will take you from every nation and I will bring you into a land that I'll give you. And so these, these people are gathered from every nation and they come and they are all baptized. And through these waters of baptism, they're cleansed from their sin and idolatry and unrighteousness and, and turning away from God. Not only are they baptized, but also they are changed on the inside. Christ says that they, that they, to understand and receive eternal life, they must be born again. And so not only are they uh, baptized and cleansed from their sin, they're given a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And at the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and there's that God's spirit is with his people. And so this is, uh, this is what happens at the day of Pentecost in this, in this saving of these 3000 people. So after Peter, uh, we didn't cover the entire passage, but in our reading today, after Peter stands up and, and describes that this is the, the fulfillment of the promise for this, the Holy Spirit to come, he then goes on to give a sermon about uh, redemptive history. And this sermon, in, in this sermon, he presents the gospel. And Pentecost should be seen as the, what, what we might call the, the summary or the the, the revisiting of all of the elements of what redemptive history has been pointing toward and, and pointing forward to. So because the spirit has come, we all can enter Christ. And because the spirit has come, we are now emboldened not only to receive Christ, but also to go forth and tell of him. Peter, as I mentioned, had given this sermon of, of the gospel. He had given literally the first uh, the first Pentecost Sunday sermon on what God has been doing throughout the earth. And he made it plain to these Jewish people, these people, these, uh, these people who were living in the, the region of Rome's uh, influence, we called them Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews that had been living throughout all of um, uh, antiquity or Hellenism. That is the, the Greek culture and influence. And so these Hellenistic Jews come and hear they hear Peter speak this sermon, but this wouldn't have happened had, uh, had Peter not been given a special gift. You see, Peter had a very significant problem early in earlier in his life before the crucifixion, Peter had boasted that he would not at all deny Christ, nor would he leave him. He said specifically that I will stay with you even to the point of death. And he said, even if all others desert you, I won't. Peter, Peter had made a threefold, a, a threefold affirmation of his uh, desire to be with Jesus. I'm not going to leave you, even if all others forsake you, even if I have to go to the point of death. A threefold affirmation of his own ability to stay near Jesus. And yet we see and know very plainly that Peter denied Christ in a threefold way. Be, before the likes of a simple servant girl, uh, a, a girl who probably was 12 or 14, a, a, a young girl who in the eyes of the world was probably insignificant. She challenges Peter and says to him, weren't you one of the ones with, with Jesus? And he says, I've never heard of him. I don't know the man. He's not my friend, essentially. We've never known each other. 
That's, that's very scary because when Jesus provides a warning of those who are judged at the, at the judgment seat, he says to those who claim to be Christians and yet aren't, he says to me, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. We, you have to feel the effect of Peter's denial. It's, it's not just something that we hear all the time and, and we know, yeah, Peter denied Christ three times. Peter was essentially defellowshipping himself from Christ. Last week and the week before, we had talked about how God does not create distance from people, but rather by our sins, we push people, we push God away. It's like if you stood up to a big giant mountain and you tried to move the mountain by pushing it, you would only push yourself back. That's what we do in our sins. And this is what Peter does in his denial. And so at the day of Pentecost, God has mercy on Peter. Through the resurrection, Christ had come back to Peter and he had said to him that, you know, you are now to feed my sheep. And Christ in his infinite mercy and tenderness had given Peter a second chance. He had said, I knew that you were going to struggle and fall away. I prayed for you. And now I want you to feed my sheep. And in place of Peter's threefold denial, Christ has Peter make a threefold affirmation of his love for Christ. Not of his ability to stay by Christ on his own power, but of his love for Christ. And so Peter makes this affirmation. God, in, uh, Jesus tells Peter to feed the sheep and to tend his lambs and take care of the flock. And so in this, Pete, Jesus is basically saying to Peter, you're not done. It's not finished that there, there is still a, a redemptive thing to happen in your life. Now, Peter had been restored to fellowship through Jesus's affirmation, yet he still had this significant problem of the fear of, of men. And so when the day of Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes and fills Peter and gives him boldness. The same spirit that clothed the judges and warriors of old, like Gideon and, and Samson, now comes and makes Peter a bold, bold man. And so Peter, where he was silent and denying beforehand, he now stands up amongst these people of Jerusalem who had recently, a few weeks ago, killed Christ. And he says in front of all of them, probably near the temple somewhere, he tells them that, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and Lord. And so this extremely tense situation, you've got the most... Uh, the most vile city, the city that killed God in the flesh. This is the culture and, and environment in which Peter now stands up and declares the gospel. And so at Pentecost, the spirit comes to make the apostles bold and he fills their mouth with what they should speak and what they should say in the very hour they need it. And because of this, we too are emboldened to speak and share the gospel in our various uh, spheres of influence. But not only do we have open mouths, we also are supposed to be lights. Jesus in his, in his life said and testified of himself that I am the light of the world. And he then went on to say to, to his disciples, he said, you are the light of the world. You see, there's a transition from the presence of Christ in, in Jesus being here on the earth and, and now the work of God continuing through his apostles. We are the lights of the world, as Jesus has said. And so he brought light to mankind, but, but after he had brought that light, he ascended. So the question is, has the world gone back to darkness? Christ isn't really present, is he? 
I would maintain that he is. Though he has ascended, the light of the world has not totally gone out. And in the book of 1 John, uh, John says to us that as he is, so are we in this world. We're told that we are lights of the world. And so at Pentecost, these tongues of fire, they come down and are distributed and, and rest over the heads of the apostles. And th- these tongues of fire are outward in identifications of the inward reality that was taking place in the apostles' hearts. Uh, the, the scripture says that John the Baptist had seen the light. He, he knew who Christ was and he testified about the light. And at one point later, it says that John the Baptist, people were going out to him because they liked to stand in the light of his fire. And so likewise, this imagery of, of, of a, burning, a burning witness of, of Jesus, that is a true, authentic, zealous, bold witness. This is what the Holy Spirit comes and enables at the day of Pentecost. Those who had just been praying in a tiny, closed-off upper room, now were in the public square and giving a bold public proclamation of the gospel. Likewise, we, in our own lives, are not to hide our Christianity away. We're not to ignore and, and hide and, and not mention who Christ is, but rather, this day of Pentecost comes as a reminder that we are to boldly step up, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give us the ability to speak. So at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is not just the flame that comes and rests on the apostles, but it also is the indwelling, continuing oil, which that lamp uses to burn forth. And so Christ teaches us that we should do good works. And Paul echoes saying that, as well as Peter echoes saying that we, we should do our good works before men and we should keep our conduct and our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And so this is a this is a continuing reminder today. The Holy Spirit comes, there's a great rushing wind and tongues of fire giving boldness and true, clear witness of who Christ is. That, that is made available to us on this day. <clears throat> so my, the whole reason I desired to speak about Pentecost and touch on these themes today is what I had mentioned at the beginning. The day of Pentecost is not just about spiritual gifts being made possible in the church. That, believe me, that is a vital and integral part of what we uh, do in, in both of our church life as well as our witness. Words of knowledge and, and acts of faith, um, those, are, those are prime tools for gospel presentation. They affirm the word through signs and wonders. And so, in no way do I wish to diminish the importance of spiritual gifts. However, at the same time, if we uh, go to, in our tendency in some charismatic uh, subcultures to just go into thinking about Pentecost as this is when we all spoke in tongues, we miss out on so much of the beauty of what God's doing, both in his word and in, in the culture today. And so uh, we begin to neglect the benefits that come to us by the Spirit, um, even if we don't neglect the gifts. We, we neglect the beauty. We neglect our building a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And so Scripture warns us about these things. It says that, indeed, we can abuse and neglect the Spirit. Uh, Paul, in his writings, many times gives us a warning that we should not treat the Holy Spirit with contempt. And he says you shouldn't quench the Spirit or through un- 
unthankfulness and, and a lack of thanksgiving and, and unforgiveness, we shouldn't abuse and grumble against the Holy Spirit. We're, we're told and warned against lying to the Spirit. At one point in the book of Acts, two people lie to the Holy Spirit, or two people lie to the apostles, and, and uh, the apostles say, you haven't lied to us, you've lied to the Holy Spirit, and they fall dead in, in the moment. God is a consuming fire, and that consuming fire which came down as tongues of fire and rested on the top of the apostles, he is still living and burning today. And that person of the Holy Spirit can be lied to, and Paul says we shouldn't lie to him. So these things can drive the Spirit of God away. In no way am I saying that those who have been sealed in the Spirit uh, can lose their salvation or anything like that. What I'm saying is the scripture makes a very clear and explicit warning that you shouldn't drive the spirit of way, away. This happened with Saul. And so however you work out your salvation theology, you have to take the warnings of scripture seriously. You can grieve the spirit and you can put him at a distance. And so on this day of Pentecost, where we've been given the spirit, we should be em- empowered to go after the spirit. Paul tells us over and over again to follow the Spirit's lead, to sing in the Spirit with joy in the Spirit. He tells us that we are to live and move in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. He also tells us to earnestly desire those gifts that the Spirit brings and works among us. And so on this day, we are enabled and emboldened to live the life of Christ in the world. And this this enabling, this, this making possible was done by Jesus himself. And so these fruits of the spirit in our life, we, we should be looking for them in a very intentional way. And we should also call them out in our brothers and sisters. I'd really recommend and encourage you to be an encourager. In the last three or four weeks, there have been um, significant encounters in my life where someone had told me a very encouraging word and I then thanked them a few days later and they had no idea what I was talking about. Your words and the words that you speak, they have the ability to impart life, to impart the spirit to your fellow brothers and sisters of, of the body of Christ. And, and you should be using your mouth this day, not just to speak in tongues, but also to speak and build up one another. So we should communicate and mediate the presence of the Holy Spirit into all of the spheres of influence, all of the things that we set our hand to do. And on this day, we see the the prime cause or the prime point of Pentecost is not just to seek after these gifts or to, to uh, desire to speak in tongues, although those are good and wonderful things. Our prime desire today is to honor and thank the Holy Spirit for what he's done in establishing and preserving the church for the last 2,000 years. The central point of the gospel presentation in the day of Pentecost is this, that we should honor and thank the Holy Spirit for what he's done, but we should also place our faith and trust in the Spirit's ability to keep us doing the law of God, but also to keep us in the love of Christ. That twofold faith, the the faith that the Holy Spirit will enable us to do the law and where we're unable, he will keep us in the love and patience of Christ. So that is what we celebrate when we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. Let's close in prayer. Larry? Sure thing.
This one? Let's pray. Father, we thank you wonderfully for the gift of your spirit. We ask you that you would open our eyes to the importance of your Holy Spirit, that we would seek to prophesy and to encourage and to exercise the gifts of the Spirit in the church. We ask, Lord, that you would enable our mouths to be open to speak the gospel into every area of our lives, every place that we go, we would be bold and give a witness of what your son's done. God, we, we ask you today that you would not just give us more of your presence, but that you would uh, teach us deep truths about the Holy Spirit, that he is with us and that he is for us, that he's a helper and an advocate and all of the things that we couldn't talk about today. But Lord, we ask you that you would begin to train our eyes to see the grand themes of scripture, that we would turn our eyes from the vain entertainment of this earth, and that we would see the magnificent, although sometimes veiled, beauty of the literature of your word, and that you would open us to behold wonderful things from your law. God, we ask that today the entrance of your word, it would bring light and revelation and understanding to all of us today, and that you would give us again the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you would grant nearness and fellowship with your, your spirit and your presence. God, I ask that you would cause supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit's activity to take place in this church, that we would not just be a church with adequate music and adequate teachings and adequate readings, but that we would show forth the life and gifts of the Spirit of God in our worship services. Lord, we ask you that you would renew us in your image and give us the gift of your presence today. In Jesus' name, amen.